Good everyone. Welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. If you have your copy of God's Word with you, please open it to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 11, as we continue our study through this uh, wonderful, wonderful Gospel. I will uh, begin reading again at verse number one, and I think I will uh, stop with verse 26. But uh, before we read, we want to go again to our Lord in prayer and seek his anointing and enabling tonight. Our Father, In Jesus Christ, we come before you in him. What, what a wonderful truth and what a wonderful thought that is that we are in Christ. And he, by your spirit, is in us. That we have been made... you for that Lord we thank you that we can look into your word and and be instructed by it that we can uh, learn from you that we can uh, be uh, that we can grow in stature that we can grow in in power that we can grow in faith as we study your word and I know that you are going to speak to us tonight it was your purpose to do everything you did in chapter 11 it was none none of these things that we're reading here were done by mistake or by chance you orchestrated it all because you had a purpose you had a lesson to teach, and we need to learn it. So I pray you'd open our hearts and speak to us tonight out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's begin reading in chapter 11, verse number 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. <coughs> Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said what Jesus had said, and <clears throat> they let them go. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. <clears throat> and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. <clears throat> and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Man, we underline that in your Bible. If if you write in your Bible, underline that. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Well, I, I want to uh, look at this passage of scripture tonight and we'll uh, uh, do a little bit of review and you may remember that uh, we talked about uh, 
verses 1 through 11. Uh, the last time when we uh, studied this passage of Scripture, we talked about how that Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, on a, a donkey and how that this was prophesied uh, many centuries before by Malachi and also by Zechariah, uh, that this uh, arrival of Jesus was prophesied. We talked also about how that in the book of uh, Ezekiel, we saw the glory of God departing from the temple, and it was in steps, and it came out, the glory of God came out from the east gate and toward the Mount of Olives. And uh, that is exactly how Jesus returned. He returned in every way as it had been uh, appointed for him or prophesied about him. So the king, the king of uh, glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, arrived right on time. He is the glory of God. John said in uh, chapter 1 and verse number 14, the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the embodiment of the glory of God. He is the glory of God in human flesh. And we see that proven very clearly on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? We remember on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter number nine, we spent so much time on that, how that Jesus went up to the mountain, uh, to the top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John and prayed. And as he prayed, he was transfigured before them, that outward veil of flesh was over come by the inner glory. This was not something that happened to Jesus. This was something that he already had. This was not something that he achieved there. The glory was his. Some people say that he uh, laid aside his glory to come to earth, but that's just not the way I see it. Maybe you do. I believe that he did not lay aside his glory, but his glory was clothed in human flesh. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, it became very clear that the glory of God, that same glory of God that led the children of Israel through the wilderness, the same glory that sat above or hovered above the mercy seat between the cherubims when uh, God was in the tabernacle, that same glory that came down when Solomon finished his prayer in 1 Kings, was it chapter 8 or 9? He came, that glory came down in such a way that the priest had to flee outside because uh, they couldn't stand to minister. The same thing happened when Moses 
completed the tabernacle and it was set up and all the furnishings were uh, brought in, the glory of God came down. That's the glory that Jesus displayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this glorious person came into Jerusalem exactly the way he was supposed to come. He came through the eastern gate, which is the clo closest entrance. And I've, I've done a, a quite a bit of studying maps and diagrams of, uh, uh, of the Temple Mount over the last several days. And, and so this is the closest way going in from the east into the eastern gate. Uh, it's the nearest way to the temple. And the Temple Mount there covered, uh, I think I, I read it covered uh, around 30 acres. It was uh, just a huge thing. And the Temple Compound covered that whole thing. And uh, But I, I also found out something very interesting, and that is that uh, that Eastern Gate right now is sealed up. If you get a modern uh, uh, picture of uh, the eastern gate, it's sealed up. And I also read that there is a, a, a Muslim cemetery just outside the eastern gate. The reason for that, the uh, a, an Ottoman or Muslim king uh, sealed up that uh, eastern gate in 1541. And he did that, the, the uh, Islamist, Islamist did that because they knew that the prophecies said that the Messiah would come and that he would come in through the eastern gate. And so they uh, decided, well, we're going to do two things. We're going to seal up the eastern gate so when he comes, he can't get in. And we'll put a cemetery out there because he won't defile himself by walking through a cemetery. And so they uh, have it all fixed up. The only problem was they missed it. By several hundred years, <laughs> they missed it because the glory of God, the Messiah, had already come in through the eastern gate and he had already shown himself to be the Messiah. He was rejected by Israel. There's no question about that. But uh, And many ha are still rejecting him. And of course the uh, Muslims reject him. And the Jews are rejecting him as a whole. But he has already come. It's, a, it's amazing, isn't it, that the uh, Israelites were looking for this Messiah and they were looking in the palaces and in the uh, 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 homes of military leaders and rich men and things like that. And he slipped in on them incognito and was born in Bethlehem in a stable and laid in a manger. They weren't looking for one like that. And another thing that's uh, uh, pretty amazing too, looking at the diagrams of the, uh, of the uh, uh, Temple Mount on the 
northwest corner, uh, just outside the uh, wall around the uh, temple, there is a military barracks for the Roman soldiers. And so the Roman soldiers were right there. And you would have expected when the Messiah came, if you uh, were looking for the kind of Messiah that Israel was, that when he came bursting through the eastern gate, he'd go straight for the Romans' military uh, uh, barracks and take care of them. But this... Messiah came in humbly on the uh, colt, a foal of an, a donkey, and uh, rode in as the uh, scripture had prophesied that he would. And I love, I, I just love uh, Malachi's <clears throat> words here about it. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, we know who that's talking about, right? We've already studied that in the very first chapter of Mark. That's John the Baptist. He's the messenger that prepares the way before the Messiah. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Boy, I love that, don't you? He will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of and he did come. And as he <clears throat> came, people were cheering. We just read it once again. People were cheering him. They were praising him. And they were proclaiming him as the son of David. They were uh, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of their father David. And, and so this is a, a very uh, energetic thing. It's a loud thing. There's a, a large group of people that have been following Jesus. There's a large group of people that had been waiting upon Jesus because they had uh, uh, heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. That took place during this time period. And so they wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there was just a huge multitude that was following along with him. And this cheer began to rise up and it just became uh, 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 contagious. And they all began to rejoice. It upset the Jewish leaders to the point that they said, you need to make them calm down and shut up. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, if they hold their peace, the rocks would immediately cry out. So this is one of those really important things. Now, we talked about this. There was uh, probably two and a half million or more people had swelled the population of Jerusalem during this time. And probably many of them, now we're talking millions of people here, so many of them may not have even noticed what was going on. But there was a large group that was involved in this. They were throwing their garments down. They were uh, cutting off branches of trees and palm branches and throwing them in the way so that the donkey could walk on those and 
And uh, that in itself was a uh, picture of uh, the uh, coming of a king. But somehow, as they arrived at the temple, it seems like that it all began to fade. The noise began to fade and the people began to drift away and there was no coronation. They didn't bring out the throne of David and sit him on it. They didn't, they didn't follow through. I mean, it was a really good reception, wasn't it? was a wonderful reception. It was a loud reception. It was, I mean, if words mean anything, you couldn't have got much better. But, it just, nothing else happened. It all just, the excitement begins to subside and people begin to go about their business and do whatever it is they do. And, and so we read then, that uh, verse number 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Where's the multitude? Where is the crown? Where is the coronation? Where is... Uh, uh, the installation of the king. It's not happening. And so he goes back to Bethany with his 12 disciples. But, uh, <clears throat> but we read here that he went into the temple and he just looked around. And that kind of puzzled me when I first read it. But then as you get to thinking about this and you you see what all's taking place Jesus goes into the temple and this is not the first time he's been there you remember in his uh, early days of his ministry now Mark doesn't tell us about it but John tells us that soon after this uh, the uh, marriage in Cana of Galilee and you know, where he uh, turns the water into wine and he goes to Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. He starts turning over the, the tables of the money changers and he actually, in that account, he makes a whip of cords and starts whipping them. Jesus is angry. He is angry because of their defiling of the temple. And he ran them out and he cleansed the temple and uh, he put a stop to all that. But it's been three years now and it's all started right back up. Who knows how long it took, probably just uh, days to uh, gradually work back up into what it already was. But he goes into the temple and he looks around. Well, it's a beautiful temple. It's got gold furnishings. It has uh, jewels 
in it. It has such a beautiful, a beautiful uh, uh, outside. The uh, outside of it was covered with white stones, and it was just a beautiful thing. It was such a magnificent structure. Uh, uh, Herod the Great had uh, 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 instigated the or started the uh, renovation of the temple and the enlarging of the temple compound itself and the enlarging and uh, 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 beautifying of the temple. And so, and, and he took 46 years to complete it. So it's, this is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful place of worship. It's ornate. And it was 46 years in construction. It's the very center of Jewish life and culture. Everybody knows about the temple. It's all about the temple. It's all about what goes on at the temple. And so Jesus entered the temple and he looked around. Well, what was he looking for, do you think? What did Jesus want to see when he went into the temple and he looked around? Well, I think that what he wanted to see was true worship. True worship guided or regulated by Scripture. Now, at that time, worship would have in, included sacrifices, animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, but all that is regulated in the scriptures and they know how God expects it to be done. And so he was expecting he he would or he wanted to see what he would desire to see is true worship that's regulated by scripture. Secondly, I would say that he expected to see and by expected, I'm not saying that he was surprised by any of it. What I'm saying is what he wanted to see, what he would desire to have seen, is sacrifices that were being offered by faith. You know, I, I think it's important that we understand this because I've told you before, Art has told you before, and Russ has told you before, that none of the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament ever took away one sin. Not any sacrifice ever took away any sin. You say, well, then why were they sacrificing? Because, first of all, God said to, and secondly, it is an act of faith. We know, remember what Hebrews 10 says, that the, every time they did that, it reminded them every year that the sacrifice that takes away sin has not been done. And so uh, it's saying every year, yes, I'm a sinner. Every time I bring this offering, this sin question has never been fully dealt with. But one day, you're going to give us a lamb that will take away our sins. Mm -hmm. That's why John the Baptist could point to Jesus and say, mm -hmm. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. So what... Would have been wonderful if Jesus could have seen in the temple uh, would have been that they were offering sacrifices by faith. 
And thirdly, he would have loved to have seen a house of prayer for all people. Underlined the all. You see, as he came in, he came into an area <coughs> that uh, pretty much straight ahead would have been the uh, way that led to the uh, uh, bronze altar, uh, the altar of sacrifice, and the court of the uh, priests. Beyond that would be the inner, uh, the inner place of the uh, uh, the holy place, we might say, of the temple, and then beyond that. In the inter sanctum is the uh, Holy of Holies. Around that, there is a place called the Women's Court, which means that's as far as a woman could go. And then there is the Gentile Court, which is a huge open area, the Court of the Gentiles. And anybody could come into the Court of the Gentiles, and there was a low wall around it. And uh, plaques in the wall that warned the Gentiles if they came any further, uh, it could cost them their lives. And this was the area where all the noise and all the commotion is going on. But everybody's separated. And, uh, and so what he would have desired would be to have seen a house of prayer for all people. Isaiah uh, chapter 56, listen to, what, uh, listen to what Isaiah says. I'm just going to read verses uh, uh, 1 through, or uh, 3 through 8. Let me just read verses 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from the, his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. Now, you heard that, right? Foreigners who, uh, uh, who love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's Zion. That's the uh, uh, place where Jesus is right now, or in our text. And I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So, that's 
what Jesus wanted to see, but what did he see? <laughs> well, he saw in this open area in the court of the Gentiles, he saw uh, he, he saw commerce, profiteering, buying and selling, pre-approved oxen and sheep and pigeons or doves, money changers, and even people just using the temple itself as a shortcut Instead of going all the way around the Temple Mount, they could go in the eastern gate and go through out another gate and they didn't have to make that long walk. And so they were carrying merchandise through and burdens through the temple. It was just a place of industry to them. It's... They talked about it like it was a holy place. They tried to make everyone else treat it as a holy place. But when it came right down to it, they did not treat it as a holy place themselves. Now, here's, here's what's going on when you read this. Listen to what... Uh, what Mark says about the temple. They, verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, What's going on here? What, what, what's all the livestock? What's all that about? Well, you've got people coming from all over the uh, uh, known world who are Jews who want to come in for Passover. Now, they can either bring their offerings with them, depending on how far they're traveling, but that would be a little bit difficult and something might happen to their uh, animals that they're planning to offer on the way. And so the most convenient way would be to wait until you get there. And they had set it up in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, so they could have some pre-approved animals that you could buy. And of course, it costs a little more because, I mean, after all, they're pre-approved. You don't have to worry. And, and then some people could bring in their animal who live close by, bring in their animal. And the priest might say, you know, this one's just, this one's just not acceptable. And so they would sell them one that's guaranteed to pass. Do you see how... And, and even when, when you talk about the pigeons or the doves, do you know what that is? Do you know what the, the doves are? Those are the offerings for the poor people. Maybe they can't afford a lamb. All they can afford is a dove. And 
they've got the doves there, and they say, your dove just doesn't pass muster, but this one will. Do you think, is it any wonder that Jesus got angry? Also, the money changers, what's that all about? Well, they had a, there was a temple tax, of course, and there were, were offerings to be given, and there was only one kind of coinage that would be accepted, and so when you brought money from anywhere else, you had to change the money, because they're only going to accept, and if you had to buy an animal, I mean, they're only going to accept one kind of, so this is what's going on and so Jesus just goes in and starts throwing it out and driving out these animals and overturning the tables of the money changers can you imagine that can you imagine how angry that must have made him it's one thing to drive out the animals but to take all that money and turn it upside down and it fly all over the place that must have made them furious. But they couldn't do anything. <laughs> because so many people counted Jesus as a, as a mighty man, as a holy man. And so, and just to give you, an, uh, and, and John MacArthur, I, I read this in something John MacArthur wrote. To give you just an idea of how many animals and what it must have smelled like and looked like in there. John MacArthur said that uh, a later account said that there, that Passover, there were 260,000 lambs offered. <laughs> Can you imagine how many animals were out there? How many people were out there? And so this is... This is what's going on, and Jesus is angered by it, and he begins to uh, uh, throw these things out. So, why is, uh, so let's go back now to verses 12 through uh, 14. So this is sandwiched in between Jesus first coming into the temple and then Jesus coming into the temple to cleanse it. Mark always, he, he likes to do these sandwiches. And here is the sandwich beginning in verse number 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <clears throat> and his disciples heard. What's, what's going on here? This is a passage that is so seriously misunderstood. And I was appalled in studying this as to how seriously misunderstood it is. But uh, there are people who, uh, one uh, critic, 
scriptural critic says that this is a gross injustice. Jesus cursing this little fig tree when it's not even the season for figs. And we're told that it's not the season for figs. Jesus curses this poor little defenseless fig tree. It's an injustice on a tree that really is guilty of no wrong. Another one says that it's a tale of miraculous power wasted by ill temper. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about atheists. <laughs> I'm talking about people who seriously misunderstand this passage of Scripture. Some people say that... I mean, I've, I re literally read this, that Jesus was hangry. Do you know what that is? You're hungry and it makes you a little irritable? That Jesus was hangry. That's not right. One said that Jesus had forgotten to eat. That's probably what happened. He had probably forgotten to eat. Jesus did not forget to eat. It was not an oversight. It was not one of those days where he was just so busy that he forgot to eat. It didn't even dawn on him that he was hungry until he saw that tree. No, that's not the way it was. Jesus had this all ready. This was all planned out from uh, eternity. He's teaching something here. He's doing something, and what he's doing is a parable. It's a visible parable. He comes out of Bethany, coming to Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree in leaf. Now here's what you got to learn about the fig trees of that variety is that the figs, Come before the leaves. That's an unusual thing, isn't it? But these figs, they, they, these trees put on fruit before the leaves. And so when Jesus sees the fig tree that is in full leaf, it is natural for him to assume, if this was the way it was, that he just flying by the seat of his pants, it would be natural for him to assume that there would be figs. And when he gets there, there are no figs, nothing but leaves. In other words, this fig tree was showing something that it was not. It was saying, look at me, I am a fruitful fig tree. But it had nothing but leaves. You see, no matter how beautiful the tree, no matter how strong the tree, how broad the branches, how strong the trunk, how beautiful the leaves, it matters not if it bears no fruit. And you see what Jesus wants 
from all his things that he created is fruit. He wants fruit. It's a fig tree. It stands out because it has leaves at a time when it's not even the season for figs. It is, uh, uh, it's a, uh, a tree that should have put on the fruit before the leaves. And Jesus had every right to expect fruit on it, even though it was not the season for figs. And let me throw this one at you. Being its creator, he had every right to curse it if he wanted to. He's the creator, right? Mm -hmm. He has every right. As a matter of fact, when they asked Jesus what authority he had to overturn these tent tables in the temple and to drive out the... He said, well, let me just ask you a question. John's baptism, was it of man or from heaven? Well, no, we can't answer that. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you what authority I have, but I'll tell you what authority he had. He created it all. It's all his. And he has every right to destroy it if he sees fit. This incident, this instance, this, uh, this story that we read here, or historical event that took place that we read of here, is a visual parable referring to, first of all, ethnic Israel as a whole. He loved Israel. He chose Abraham. He chose Israel. He loved Israel. He provided for Israel. He protected Israel. He planted Israel in their land. And that he expected fruit from ethnic Israel. And they turned their back on. It's also a visual parable of the events of the previous day. Do you, you remember the previous day? All these people shouting and praising him and saying, The King of Israel, Hosanna, salvation, uh, salvation now. Hosanna to the Son of David. They're saying all this and it was all leaves and no fruit. I think it was Russ or, or, or Art one that said just a few days later when he went out to the Mount of Olives on the night of his betrayal that probably those palm branches were still there in the road. Isn't that amazing? How quickly things had turned. It's a picture uh, or a parable of the things he has seen in the temple. You see, what Art has been teaching us in uh, the Minor Prophets, this wrath that God keeps threatening and, and pouring out on, on the people of, uh, of Israel and Palestine and that whole area, that... That wrath is for this very same thing. Mm -hmm. 
All he wants is fruit. All he wants is for people to acknowledge him as God, to stand in awe of his majesty and worship him. That's what he wants. As a matter of fact, what is it Micah who said this? He's told you what he wants, to love justice. To love justice. And to walk, what's the other one? Walk, love justice uh, mercy. and mercy and walk humbly with your God. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants. Mm -hmm. And when he doesn't get it, he has every right to demand it. And when he does not see it, he has every right to expose you to his wrath. That's exactly what he did to this fig tree. And it was a picture that Israel and the people in the temple should have gotten. And he wants his disciples to get it. I want fruit. I want fruit. And if there is no fruit, there will be wrath. There will be destruction. So we need to ask ourselves, are we bearing fruit? Are we bearing fruit for him? Is he glad when he comes into the garden of our hearts? When he sees us as a temple of the Holy Spirit and he looks at what is important to us, is it commerce? Is it disobedience or is it a heart that is lift up to him and eyes set upon his glory and beauty? Because if it's not, oh, Russ will get to it in talking about those churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3 where, uh, you know, the church of Ephesus, he said, repent. And return to your first love or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your candlestick. Mm -hmm. He was angry, was it the church of Smyrna where he said, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. Mm -hmm. All leaves. He tells the church of Laodicea, I wish you were either hot or cold. Since you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Mm. It's a serious thing. Mm -hmm. God's serious about this. Jesus is serious about this. He wants fruit mm -hmm. from our lives. Mm -hmm. Father, take the scattered remarks and I pray that you would apply them to our hearts. Help us. Help us, oh Lord, to, to be serious about serving you, to be serious about loving you. And may you always be glad when you come into the garden of our hearts. May you receive fruit from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.